you have a Bible with you today, we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or anything else that you'd like. So I say to you, hear the word of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, come and that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, help us to understand our sonship. Help us to, to experience what it means to be children of a father who will never fail us or forsake us. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're about halfway through our uh, sermon series on the book of Galatians. And so this morning, I thought I would ask you a a question that's going to seem like it's from just way, way, way in left field, but I I promise you it it will apply. And so the question is this, what do you know about Tarzan? Right, Tarzan is one of the most recognizable names in the world. And, And I was going to start this question by saying, who is your favorite literary character of all time? And one of them, for me, would have been Tarzan. I started watching Tarzan when I was a little boy. It was in black and white. If you're, old, if you're as old as I, I remember Johnny Weissmuller, uh, you know, wrestling fake rubber crocodiles and things, all that. And at some point, I started reading the novels. You know, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote the first Tarzan novel in 1912 and didn't finish writing Tarzan novels until 1965. He wrote 25 of them. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. So for example, if I said, who was Tarzan's first love? Wrong, every one of you. There's a, a novel entitled Tarzan's First Love. Spoiler alert, it didn't work out well because it was an ape named Tika. She ditched Tarzan for his rival named Tog, right? So it's pretty crazy. You get into, so so the, the interesting thing about Tarzan, as I thought about it, is this, though. In every single one of the novels, every single problem that Tarzan has ultimately revolves around one issue. And every resolution that he has in all 25 novels ultimately revolve around one issue. So all of Tarzan's problems ultimately come from the fact either that he doesn't know who he really is or he has forgotten who he really is. In other words, the, the, the whole premise of the very first novel is that Tarzan is the son of an English lord, Greystoke. And they go to Africa and his parents are killed. He's raised by apes and for his whole, for the next 18 years, he has no idea who he is. That's why he's tra- chasing around apes as his first love. He doesn't realize 
In fact, Tarzan, by the way, means white skin in the ape language. So on one hand, he doesn't know who he is. And eventually, when he does realize who he is, and he begins to, to, to reclaim his birthright in all these things, well, then other problems arise when he gets amnesia. A few times, in a, there's 25 novels, he, he has to repeat himself every now and then. Tarzan gets amnesia a few times. And when Tarzan gets amnesia, guess what? Everything goes back, you know, goes to heck again. Now, on the other hand, every time that there is resolution in one of these novels, it's because Tarzan remembers who he is. He remembers that he is the son of royalty. And he remembers that his claim is, is royalty. Or he remembers, conversely, he remembers if he's been living in England too long and he's gotten soft and things start getting difficult, he remembers that he's Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. You see, the, the interesting thing about Tarzan, as you think about it, is Tarzan's life in many ways is exactly like our life. Almost all of our problems resolve around the fact that they boil back down to the fact that either, A, we don't know who we are, we don't know that we are adopted children of an all-powerful king, or we forget that we are adopted children of an all-powerful king. So if all of our problems sort of boil down to the fact that we don't know who we are or that we forget who we are, guess what the resolution to those problems is? Is that we either find out who we are or if we know who we are, we remember who we are. And so when you look at the book of Galatians, in some ways that's what it's all about. The Apostle Paul is writing to a congregation that at some level has gotten grace amnesia. They have forgotten. Remember, he opens up chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started out this way. Do you think you're going to finish in some different way? You started by the Spirit. God initiated with you. Do you think it's going to be different? He's reminding them that God saved them, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of the works of Christ. And not only has God saved them, or justified them, not only made them right, and not only is he going to continue working in them, but what, the, what we've gotten into now, last week started, was he's not only forgiven you, he's not only promised to finish the job in you, but he actually has taken you into his household as a beloved son. Now, by the way, son is generic. If you're male or female, sons in the ancient Near East got all the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance, and Paul says that what the gospel has done has not only made you forgiven, it has not only made you holy, but it has actually made you part of a family with a father who will never fail you or forsake you. We started looking at that last week. This week we'll continue that theme, and so we're going to look at three things this morning. Basically, three things we're going to look at are an illustration, a recitation, and an application. Right, so an illustration, a recitation, and an application. What Paul did last week is he introduced this theme of adoption, and he, he began to explain it, and this week he's, it, he continues, and he opens with an illustration. So let's look at the, what, the, what is that illustration. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I, I mean that. Remember, he's basically saying, as long as the heir is the child, he is, he is no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So what's Paul getting at there? What, what's the, what illustration is he using? He's using an illustration from the Roman world, and in the Roman world, basically male children, on one hand, they would be uh, considered heirs, but they wouldn't receive the father's inheritance until they were 25 years old. Unless the father determined that it should be later. 
In, in other words, the, the, everything came down to what the father decided. So the, it could just be natural, 25, you get your inheritance, or the father could stipulate, nope, Tommy's a little bit immature. He didn't get his inheritance until he's 35 or 45 or 55 or 65. Who knows? But that's, that's the language he's using here. That, that imagine an heir with an incredibly wealthy father who has, he's not old enough to receive his inheritance yet. The father has determined that it's time or he's not 25. What happens until then? Well, until the time this child who eventually will receive all of the, the wealth of his father, until he does receive that, he is in some sense no better than a slave. His life looks like that, right? And some of you who are teenagers might sort of identify with that, right? You feel you want uh, freedom, you want privileges, you want to be an adult, and your parents sort of keep telling you like, no, 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 right? Or they say yes, 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 depending on the thing. But either way, it doesn't feel like you're completely free. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, until we are made free by the Father, it feels like we are sort of still slaves. We still act like slaves. This, there's still, remember that we talked about the pedagogue last time, last week, that the job of a pedagogue in the, the Roman world was basically to make sure his young charge, usually male, made it from point A to point B without getting in trouble. And remember Paul said last week that the law was that pedagogue. The law, the job of the law was to make sure we got where we needed to be and where we need to be ultimately is Jesus. And notice what he says. He says that in the same way, verse 3, we also, when we were children, he's talking about us spiritually, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so that, that phrase there, that verse is one of the sort of most controversial verses in New Testament scholarship. What does he mean by saying we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? And this is one of those times where Paul has used a word that is completely determined by your ethnicity. In other words, the way you hear it, the way you would define this word is determined by your ethnicity. The word in Greek is stoikia, and if you were Jewish, it means elementary things. And if you were Jewish and you heard someone use that word, what you would think was your ABCs or your musical scales, things like that, elementary things. Right? And he says, and so if you read it that way, he says we're enslaved to the elementary things of the world. And, and if you're Jewish, you would hear law. Until the time of the father's choosing, we were enslaved to the law. On the other hand, if you were Greek, if you were a Gentile, when you heard elementary things of the world, you would hear in your mind either things like elements, like earth, wind, air, and fire, or even uh, maybe spirits that govern different sort of geographies, those kinds of things, or even idols. But either way, whether you're Jewish and you were enslaved to the law, or whether you were a Gentile and you were enslaved to, to idols, or you were enslaved to the law that even was just written on your heart, the fact is, is that before the Father makes us free, we are slaves. That we are slaves. We are slaves to the law. We are slaves to our idols. We are slaves to sin. And who wants to be a slave? Nobody does. You see, part of the issue with sin is we tend to think, well, wow, sin, that, that, you know, that it's all about being a transgressor. It's all about breaking laws. And that's true. But most of the time, we don't think about sin as being slaves. You see, you're either a slave to sin, the Bible says, or you're a slave to, to Jesus. And to be a slave to Jesus actually means to be free. 
Remember when Jesus in John chapter 8 was talking to, to a bunch of religious leaders and they, they said, we've never been enslaved to anybody. And so number one, it shows that they don't really understand their history. On the other hand, Jesus said, I'll tell, tell you the truth. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so what's the answer to slavery to sin? That's what Paul goes next. He gives them a recitation. You see, the illustration is that all of us, like children, are enslaved to these pedagogues and until the Father decides to make us free. Well, how does the Father make us free? That's what Paul gives us as a recitation. Now, why am I saying it's a recitation? Let me read to you verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the reason I'm calling that a recitation is, number one, it rhymes. Number two is because almost every scholar that you read, whether they're conservative or, or liberal or somewhere in between, would say that this, these two verses are actually part of an ancient church liturgy that they used to use, that Paul is quoting. Paul would have expected them to know this, that, that he's reminding them of a liturgy that was probably pretty common in the, the early church. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you often will find sort of sections that are sort of uh, put apart, maybe put in italic sometimes. Those are often part of ancient church liturgies that Paul is pulling in to remind them of what they believe. And so basically, he says the answer to our slavery, the, the way we become free, are six things. He gives us a, basically a six-point gospel outline, and I'm just going to walk through this quickly. The first thing he says, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, what does he mean by the fullness of time? And the, the honest answer to that is no one really knows. In other words, when God decided it was the right time for Jesus to come, for us to be delivered from our sins. Now, there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that at the time Jesus came, it was the first time in human history when all of the known world was joined together by a series of roads that the Romans had built. And all of the world was joined together by a common market language called Koine Greek. In other words, people could, could, could speak Greek across sort of uh, state lines, if you will. And so you had these roads, you had all of the, the, this common language. And remember Pentecost, everyone came in, they heard the gospel in their own language, and then they left, and it took off. So maybe that's what it means by the fullness of time. Either way, when God decided it was the right time, that's when Jesus came. It's like, remember um, in the opening of Lord of the Rings, and, and Gandalf is late, and Frodo, Frodo says to him, you know, you're late, Gandalf. Remember Gandalf says to him? He says, a, a, wizard, a wizard is never late. A wizard arrives exactly when he decides to arrive, something like that. That's when Jesus came. He, he came exactly when God decided it was the right time. And it says next, then verse 3, it says, or verse 4, it says, he was sent forth, so the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth his son. And what we learn when, when it says that God sent forth his son, among other things, is that Jesus is divine. That Jesus, God didn't create Jesus, that Jesus preexisted with God the Father in all eternity, and God sent him into human form. And that's what he says next. He was, he, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, who was born of a woman. We celebrate that. We look at that every Advent. But why was Jesus born of a woman? Because Jesus came to bear our sins. Jesus came as a human to pay for the sins of humanity. And Jesus. And the next thing it says is that Jesus was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. In other words, we tend to think of Jesus as sort of generic Jesus. <laughs> He's, he wasn't generic Jesus. He was Jewish Jesus. 
Jewish Jesus came. He was born of a woman so that he might experience everything that we experience, but he was also born under the law so that he would have to obey everything that we obeyed. And the Bible says that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And the reason Jesus obeyed the law perfectly is because you and I couldn't obey the law perfectly. That Jesus, God sent forth his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? It says, to redeem those who are under the law. And the language there is the language of, of a slave market that God sent Jesus to pay for us, to buy us, if you will, out of slavery. Now, in the Roman world, either you, you could, it was possible to buy your way out of slavery. Either you had, to pay for your, you had to pay for it yourself or someone else had to pay for it. Now, if you and I are in slavery to sin, do you have the ability to pay for it? Do you have the ability to redeem yourself? Do you have the ability to offer God a, a, a record of perfect righteousness all on your own? And the answer is no, if you're honest. And that's what Paul has been saying for this whole book, that it's not works, it's grace. It's not our works, it's Jesus' works on our behalf. And then the next thing he says is interesting because we tend to, to as we, if you're explaining the gospel, we tend to, to, to culminate the whole thing with what? That Jesus came and he was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And we, if we were writing it, if I was writing it, we might say, so that we can be forgiven. Right? Or so, so, that, so that we can be justified or so that we can be holy. In this particular passage, Paul actually says that the culmination of the whole gospel, the culmination of all of God's work and everything that he has done in sending Jesus into the world is not just your forgiveness. It is your sonship. He says that he sent, in verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Again, you can't work for adoption. You receive it. But the, but the culmination of the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, was not just that you could be forgiven and then be a robot and then go out and live your life and be a good person. Are you forgiven? Absolutely. Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Absolutely. But the culmination of the gospel is that you might be a son or a daughter, a child of God. That you would have a father who would never fail you, who would never forsake you. That's why it's so important that God sent forth his son, because as we are in Jesus, we also become sons of God. We become heirs to all that he has, which means also that everything he does and is, he's does for our good. And let me ask you this question. For on a day-to-day -day basis, do you believe that God is proactively out to do you good? Do you believe that he is a father who is proactively out to do you good and that every single thing that happens doesn't come by chance, but it comes by his fatherly hand? And that for some reason he is doing this out of his grace and his love for me, even if it's to drive me back to him. Is that what would we believe? You know, um, St. Augustine talked about this passage. He talked about adoption a lot. He talked about the fall. And St. Augustine called the fall Felix Culpa. And what Felix culpa means in Latin is happy fall. In other words, he said, he said the fall of Adam and Eve was a good thing. It was a, it was a, it was a fortunate event. Why would Augustine say that the fall of Adam and Eve was a fortunate event when it cast everything? It, it ruined everything. It ruined shalom. And the answer is just this. You see, when Adam and Eve were, were created in the garden, that's all they were. They were creations. They were created in the image of God, but they weren't part of the family. They were just there. And the question is, would they be obedient or would they not be obedient? But once they fell, 
It put into motion this plan of redemption that would ultimately end up not with Adam and Eve just being restored into creatures in God's image who could be holy and happy, but creatures who would be part of his family because they were in his image. And the, the last thing that Paul says here is he, he gives us an application. And the application, again, I, I love the book of Galatians because Presbyterians tend to focus on it for the doctrinal part, and we tend to miss the experiential part. Because there's two, there's two sendings in this passage. On one hand, God sends the Son to accomplish redemption for us. On the other hand, he sends the Holy Spirit so that we might experience redemption. And by experience, I don't mean just that you become saved, but I mean that we actually experience something. It, 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 it does something to our affections, to our emotions. We actually are changed by this thing called the gospel. Notice what he says. He says in verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And again, if it was me writing this, and if it was me explaining this, I'd say, and then after all that, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts in order that what? We might be good. Or in order that we might pray a lot. Or in order that we might uh, preach a lot. Or in order that we might do something a lot. But the, he says the reason, since you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart so that you might cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the reason the Spirit is sent to, into our hearts, Martin Luther would say, because we are, are weak in our faith, even when we have trusted Jesus, but also um, it's because we, need, we don't really often understand what it's like to, to be loved by God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts to give us assurance. Now, we're all people at all times assured equally? No. But the reason that the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts is to assure us. There are two things that assure us that God is our Father and He'll never fail us and forsake us. One are the promises in, in the Bible, and the second are the, is the cry of the Spirit in our heart. And you know you've begun to understand the gospel. You know that the gospel is working in your heart when your knee-jerk reaction to things is to cry, Abba, Father. When you realize that you need Jesus, you realize that you need the Father, that you don't have to do it yourself, that you don't have to make it through this life on your own, that, that when you, as soon as you start to cry, that's when you get it. You know, I read a great, um, it, was a, it was sort of a blog post, and it was, it's probably about 10 years old now, by Russell Moore, who back then, he wasn't famous, he's pretty famous now, and basically the, the title of this blog post, it was in Christianity Today in July, I think, you know, whatever, 10 years ago now, was... Um, in the title of it was Abba Changes Everything. And he tells the story there of he and his wife going to Russia to adopt two orphans from an orphanage. Um, Benjamin and Timothy were their, were their names. And they go to the orphanage, and the thing that immediately strikes him when he walks into the orphanage is not that, that it's dirty, or not that, that it's, there's some squalor, or not that there's a bunch of misbehaved kids. He walks into the, the, the orphanage full of children, and it is completely, chillingly quiet. And he asked one of, one of the helpers, what's going on? Why is this place so quiet? And he said, well, what happens is when children first come, they cry out quite a bit, but eventually they learn that no one is going to answer their cry. And eventually they just stop crying out. So they go and they meet their children, Timothy and, and Benjamin. And how, how it works is you went and met your 
children, and, and they sort of okayed everything, and then they had to come back to the United States while the paperwork was being done, and then they go back and get the children. Well, as they were leaving, he writes, as they, were, as they were leaving, he hears a blood-curdling scream. And he turns around and looks back, and it's Benjamin, the youngest of the babies. And he says, he said, on that day, Benjamin became a son, and I became a father. Right? Suddenly, this little boy who had no hope of anyone ever caring for him and loving him had hope. And having hope, the first thing he did when it looked like it was going to go away was cry out for it. You see, the re- well, you know you have a father when you're willing to cry out for him. And let, let me close with this from Luther. It, it, and this sh- should be one of the most encouraging things you hear all day, I'm sure. He says, Luther says of this passage of us crying out, Abba, Father. He says, no matter how terrible, great and terrible, the cries are that the law, the sin, and the devil loose against us. Even though they seem to fill heaven and earth and to overcome the size of our hearts completely, Still, they cannot do us any harm. For the more these enemies press in upon us, accusing us and vexing us with their cries, the more we do, sighing, take hold of Christ with heart and lips, we call upon him, cling to him and believe that he was born under the law for us in order that he might redeem us from the curse of the law and destroy sin and death. When we have taken hold of Christ by faith this way, we cry through him, Abba, Father, and here's the line you're going to want to remember. And this cry of ours far exceeds the cry of the devil. In other words, if your life is like mine, it is nothing but noise. It's nothing but noise saying, Tommy, you have failed again. You have not met the, mat- the you, you know, have not met the standard again. You're not a great father. You're not a great husband. You're not a great pastor. You, you name it, name it. And it just becomes loud and noisy. And what he says is when we cry, Abba, Father, that cry is louder than any other cry in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The reason God hears our cry is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So when you begin to doubt God's love for you, look to the cross and seeing the cross, please cry out for him. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that as we come here, um, every one of us broken in, in some way or another, every one of us struggling with one thing or another, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would cry out in our hearts, even today, even, even this week, Abba, Father, and that that cry would drown out the cry of the world. In Jesus' name we pray all these things, amen and amen.